This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. She kindly stepped aside today to grant me an opportunity to talk about my favorite charity during this Bladder Cancer Awareness Month. It's a bittersweet segment for me since my mom, Sandy, died with bladder cancer back in 2012, so I advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada in her memory. Joining me as they do every year, Ferg Devins, bladder cancer survivor and chair of Bladder Cancer Canada, and Dr. Alexander Zlot. Director of Urology at Mount Sinai Hospital, professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto, and member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. Ferg and Dr. Zlata, welcome to both of you. Hello, Jane. Nice to be here. Ferg, hello. hello, hello. Well, my feeling, Ferg, is that more people have become aware of bladder cancer in recent years because of the incredible work of your team at Bladder Cancer Canada. People are seeing the bus boards and the billboards, which are really striking and send home the message that if you see blood in your urine, see your doctor. Yes, it's uh, certainly one of our uh, primary campaigns is the see red see your doctor campaign. Currently, it's uh, the image of a lemon being squeezed and it's a drop of blood. Mm-hmm. And the point there being is a, a lemon should be yellow. And so your urine should be yellow. So if you see blood in your urine, you should see your doctor. And I think the most important thing to reinforce, particularly during these COVID times, Jane, if it happens once, you should call your doctor. And I'm sure that Dr. Zlotter would reinforce that. Well, right. Dr. Zlotter, what is the first thing you do if you see blood in your urine even once? I think, as uh, Ferg said, you absolutely have to consult. Don't neglect. And uh, I'm going to repeat what I said last year, which is I really think that the hospitals are the safest places in our entire country and, and, and province, basically nothing happens. The screening is so tight that nothing happens. So you, you carry and risk nothing by consulting. And by the way, I have Ferg and Dr. Zlata until one o'clock. If you have a loved one who has bladder cancer, if you have bladder cancer yourself, if you have any concerns, you'll want to grab a line for this segment. The numbers to call are 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Zlata, you would know this better than anybody uh, during covid if, if you're seeing blood in your urine and you've told your family doc about it, you may not be able to see a urologist right away. Yes, but on the other hand, honestly speaking, I think we all, and, uh, and I speak on behalf of, of, of all my colleagues, have done uh, the extra work and, and went the extra mile to, to be able to, to see patients and, and people in that condition. And so, to the best of my knowledge, uh, in terms of diagnostic workup, everything has been done to really optimize. You know, we live uh, in unprecedented times for sure, but by far and large, we've been able to help uh, people who presented with, you know, blood in the urine, for instance. Yeah. Now, when it comes to diagnosis, Ferg, there are two types of bladder cancer. Can you get into that for us? So, uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and that's what I had back in 2014. That was uh, two uh, tumors that were on the inside of the bladder. Uh, they were really on inside the surface of the bladder, and so I had a what the procedure called TURBT, which is basically they go in and, and surgically I was put under, and they remove those those tumors from inside the bladder, scrape them out, if you will, mm-hmm. make sure they've got, uh, you know, all of the margins of, of the tumors. Now, I was high grade. So following that, I, I underwent uh, up to 18 uh, treatments of a treatment called BCG. People can see the explanation of that on our website at bladdercancercanada.org. So that's non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. I still have my bladder. I was very fortunate and touch wood, uh, you know, since 2014, I've been all clear ever since. 
The other is invasive bladder cancer, and oftentimes that's when the uh, doctor's lotto likes to call it the tiger versus the pussycat, and, and it becomes very aggressive, goes into the wall of the bladder, can be penetrating the wall of the bladder, and that, that's when the bladder has to be removed through what's known as a radical cystectomy. And then doctors lotto can probably enlighten us on some of the options that patients would have with respect to urinary uh, diversion if the bladder is removed. There's also metastatic bladder cancer, and I raised that because I unfortunately lost a friend just last week to uh, metastatic bladder cancer. Oh, Ferg, uh, he I'm sorry. To that disease. Yeah, he, he had a kidney removed uh, three years ago, and as it turned out, it was bladder cancer in that kidney. It was metastatic bladder cancer. Oh. So, um, you know, I think it's important. The, the big thing here is you catch it early. I was very fortunate. I had some, some strange back pain. I went to my doctor, had, had a CT scan. It showed something in the bladder. I was off to uh, see my urologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences, and they caught it early and I got them out of there and I still have my bladder today. So if you see blood in the urine, for gosh sake, folks, you make sure you call your doctor. Uh, Dr. Zlata, let's talk about the alternatives uh, for those who've had invasive uh, bladder cancer and need to have their bladders removed. My mother was one of those and she was living quite normally uh, for a year until we realized that her bladder cancer had actually traveled to to her lungs and other parts of her body. And once that happens, uh, survival, it, it is almost negligible. There are some cases where people do survive. And, and I know that that has changed a lot since 2020. 12. Um, so talk to us a little bit about how that all works once you lose your bladder to cancer. So first of all, let me just emphasize, and uh, Ferg is absolutely right, that what has changed a little bit compared to uh, probably 15 years ago is that not every single tumor, which is a tiger and that invades into the muscle, needs necessity now to be uh, removed with the, the bladder. Most do, but we have a what's called a bladder preservation program where tumors which are less than, say, three inches, which are um, isolated and single, not multifocal, and that don't push on the ureters, uh, we can actually do what's called trimodality therapy, where the tumor is resected, like Ferg had his entire bladder tumor shaved, and this is then accompanied by a short dose of chemotherapy, low level, and then radiation therapy on, on the bed of the resection. And we showed a couple of years ago uh, that at five or 10 years follow-up, the results were equivalent for a subset of, of patients who fell into this category. And we're actually expanding with a large uh, multi-center in North America to, to prove this further. So I think the, the, the reassuring news is that in the past, yes, it was always the removal of the bladder. Now it's not necessarily, and this should be discussed. Now, Amazing. if the bladder has to be removed, either you reconstruct a, a, a new bladder using bowel. This is called a neobladder with small bowel. Um, this works usually in men and women who are reasonably young, not because you can't do it later after the age of 70, 75, but simply because the sphincter is a little bit weaker with age and therefore the risk of incontinence above a certain age is high. Mm -hmm. Or depending on the location of the tumor and the type of tumor, one actually um, re-implants a two ureter in a piece of bowel that is actually then brought to the skin. That's called an allele conduit. Or in some circumstances, we're able actually to do a pouch of right colon, which can be catheterized through the umbilicus, and that's called an Indiana pouch. So there's a variety of ways to divert the urine from continent to non-continent. But the key message is that in contrast to what people would anticipate and logically, the quality of life of people who underwent that surgery is just surprisingly good, and humankind adapts to a new situation, and that's really the key message. It's Bladder Cancer Awareness Month, and and joining me, Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Dr. Alexander Zlata and Ferg Devins of Bladder Cancer.
Cancer Canada. Dr. Alexander Zlata is a foremost urinology expert uh, here in the city of Toronto and also a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. We do have uh, some calls. We have some Zoomer radio listeners who want to speak with you both. Um, since it is Bladder Cancer Awareness Month, Ferg, let, let's talk about where bladder cancer is falling in the lineup of cancers in Canada. How many people get it each year? Uh, and uh, survival rates when it's caught early? So we've got uh, somewhere around eleven to 12,000 patients that would be diagnosed in a given year across the country. Um, we, we say that our community is about 80,000 bladder cancer patients across the country. Um, and, and in fact, Jane, we have about 7,000 subscribers to our Bladder Cancer Canada newsletter. So in the Awareness Month of May, Bladder Cancer Awareness Month, really we have two purposes for awareness. One is to raise public awareness about the disease because as you, as you ask, it's the fourth most prevalent cancer for men in Canada and 12th for women, making it the fifth most prevalent uh, cancer overall. So we really need to get the word out there. Uh, so that's important. The other important thing is that we at Bladder Cancer Canada are here with some plentiful resources to support those patients along their journey. After they leave that doctor's office, oftentimes there are questions that are not medical questions, but it's really lifestyle questions. How do I tell my family? How do I now plan for my journey? What's this thing they call cystoscopy? There, there's a number of questions that the patient has in mind, and we have have the resources to support those patients, whether that's online through our discussion forums at bladdercancercanada.org or through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. We also have patient guidebooks on our site. So we're trying through Bladder Cancer Awareness Month and hashtag Bladder Cancer Aware to attract as many patients across Canada as possible to join us at Bladder Cancer Canada. Excellent. All right. What we'll do is take a quick break and then get back to your phone calls. Uh, I'm inviting you till one o'clock. If you have bladder cancer, if you have a loved one with bladder cancer, uh, Dr. Alexander Zlata and Ferg Devins are here to answer your questions. Here are the numbers again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Your questions and answers coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. It is Bladder Cancer Awareness Month. I've been an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada since 2015 in memory of my mom who died with the disease in 2012. And joining me, uh, two gentlemen who have become friends over the years, Ferg Devins, Bladder Cancer Survivor and Chair of Bladder Cancer Canada, and Dr. Alexander Zlata, Director of Uro-Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, Professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto and member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. I'm looking forward to uh, them helping you out here with your questions. Let's go to Beverly in Hamilton. Beverly, go ahead. Hi. Um, it, last September, my husband was um, blood and insurance, and um, he was diagnosed with mild bladder cancer. But it was also the prostate, and it, um, so they did two TERPs and two BCGs. Um, by the time they were finished that, which was in March, um, it had gone into the um, muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, then... Um, now it has gone into the uh, pelvic wall. Now, I feel that there was too much time lapse between what they were doing. Now, he does have Parkinson's, and he has atrial fibrillation. So what is your question for the doctor, Beverly? Would he, should they be taking the bladder out when it's gone that far? They're going to do um, tests or uh, radiation and chemo. But I'm wondering, should they be taking that bladder out? Okay, Dr. Zlato, you've heard uh, Beverly's story. What are your thoughts? 
So uh, I mean, and first of all, I'm I'm really sorry uh, to hear that, and and, and uh, crossing fingers and toes uh, for the best response to the combination of chemo and RAS. What I can tell you is that um, you know when the disease is high grade but still not invasive, uh, the BCG is actually the standard of care, and so BCG is an immunotherapy. And it actually takes time for BCG to work because it really boosts the immune system to recognize tumor cells and to kill them. And you're absolutely right. The big dilemma uh, that many urologists face is that a substantial amount of patients will respond to BCG and therefore avoid the progression to muscle invasion. And this can be north of 75%. And that means that if you remove the bladder in those people, by definition, you over-treat. But at the same time, it happens, and that's really sad for sure, that people, despite the BCG, because it takes time, will invade and progress. And so it's a very, very difficult call. It's a, it's a call between, between overreacting and underreacting. The good news that I would like to share with you is that in the past, especially after 1BCG, when people did not respond to BCG, the only way to deal with that was to remove the bladder. But since probably two years, we have a truly flurry of new treatments which are effective. It can be from the combination of two drugs which are instilled in the bladder, like docetaxel and gemcitabine. It can be by using what is called the immune checkpoint inhibitors that were initially given for people who had the disease outside of the bladder, but where we realized that giving atezo, durvalumab, or nivolumab was able to actually maintain the disease confined to the bladder in a substantial number of patients. It can actually be with new compounds which are instilled in the bladder. Uh, one of them is astiladrine, uh, where it's actually a, a virus that will literally bring a bomb of interfering uh, alpha and then kill the cells. So as much as I, I really, really, genuinely sorry for what happened to to your husband, I think that the future seems to be bright for many other patients. Beverly, thank you for calling. All the best to you and your husband. Thank you. Ferg, it's really encouraging to hear Dr. Zlata talk about all this great research, and I know that's a big part of what Bladder Cancer Canada does as well, is is helping to fund research with donations uh, from the annual walk. Yes, uh, our mandate is first and foremost to support our patient community, secondly to raise awareness, and thirdly to fund research. And, you know, we are so fortunate to have people such as Dr. Alex Zlata here in Canada, in Toronto, he's, he's world-known in this field. And we're fortunate that we have many of our researchers and medical professionals across the country, Jane, who are such individuals in the space of urology and oncology. And what's fascinating is that we now share a world platform through the World uh, Bladder Cancer Patient Coalition, where we work around the world to really make a difference. And so... Funding research is critical. In in Canada this year, Bladder Cancer Canada, thanks to our donors, thanks to our supporters, thanks to those who support us during our walk, is putting forward $100,000 for research, and the Canadian Urological Association is matching that with oh, another 100000 Fantastic. So this year, we will have four $25,000 research grants and two $50,000 research grants to get out to our research community in Canada to continue the fine work that Dr. Zlada is pointing to and to continue to make breakthroughs in the fight against bladder cancer. Wow. A big smile on my face. Uh, That's great news. Great news to hear, Ferg. Let's go to Annette in Mount Forest. Annette, do you have a question for Dr. Zlada? Hi, Jane. Um, Yeah, I'm a first-time caller, and my husband has bladder cancer since October 2018, and he's wondering about... um, He's just finished the BCG treatment at the end of April, and on May 6th, he got his uh, Pfizer vaccine. Is there any um, problems with interactions between the two? Is 
one going to nullify the other? So two things. First of all, the uh, short answer is absolutely no interaction between the two. Absolutely none. And so that's probably something uh, safe to, to remember. Now, it's even better than that. BCG has been studied, and actually we've been doing a study um, here in, in Toronto, where there has been some evidence that when people are vaccinated against tuberculosis with BCG, and that could also be the case when they receive intravesical BCG, although this is to be, um, to be proven, the BCG working as an immunotherapy literally stimulates part of you, your immunity, which call, is called train immunity. And what does that mean? It means that it teaches the, 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 the body to recognize um, viruses or other dangers, which are completely unrelated to the BCG vaccine, but where the immune system is boosted to the point where you can fight off unrelated viruses, among them maybe COVID. And so there's a lot of research to show that not only has gotten zero interaction with the, the, the classical vaccines, but if anything, there is maybe a possibility that it would in, actually improve the immunity of people who got the, the BCG. And that well, is, is that helpful? Good. Thank you. Yeah, that's great news. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you for calling. I think, uh, Dr. Zlata and Ferg, we have time for one more call, just a few minutes left here. Ron in Georgina. Ron, go ahead. Hello there. Yes, I, excuse me. I had my operation um, two months ago, and now I've had my treatments for um, immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the next treatment after that? Dr. Zlata. So um, your disease was uh, a pussycat or something completely superficial, correct? No, I think he said it's it's aggressive, but it's not it's not in my muscle. Not in the muscle. So normally for what's called a high-grade non-muscle invasive tumor, the way it works is that you receive your BCG six weekly installations, and then you're going to be monitored every three months with a cystoscopy for two years. And then every well, six got, months for yeah, I've I've got to go I've got to go in uh, June the second for my first uh, 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 look at me and test, and I guess you'll know then exactly. And at the same time, um, studies have shown that giving only the BCG six weekly installations in aggressive disease is not enough. You really need like many vaccines boosting, and that's why. Uh, in addition to the first six weekly installations, you will be advised by your urologist to have what's called maintenance BCG, which is given once a week for three weeks during three years. And usually it's every uh, six months. The first one is three months and then every six months. And so basically it's reboosting your immune system to recognize and kill the tumor cells. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Ron. All the best to you with your therapy. Thank you. Bye. So as we uh, wrap up this segment for another year during Bladder Cancer Awareness Month, I'd just like to get final thoughts from both of our guests, Dr. Zlata, Ferg Devins. Uh, Ferg, we talked about, you know, the the importance of if you see blood in your urine even once to reach out to your doctor. In terms of prevention, bladder cancer prevention, uh, lifestyle, all of that, what goes into trying to avoiding contracting bladder cancer? Well, we know risk factors, certainly smoking and other tobacco use is number one. Uh, we have information that past radiation exposure may be another uh, risk factor. Chronic bladder inflammation is another one. Possible exposure to chemicals, especially in the workplace, uh, could be another one. And then lastly, uh, parasitic infections. So I guess the one that we really caution people the most on is smoking. I was a smoker back in my youth, and that's probably why I have mm-hmm. bladder cancer. So, uh, you know, really smoking is probably the one that, that raises most attention, I think, for, for people. Dr. Zlata, final comments, uh, just s- some reassurance for people who may be going through bladder cancer diagnosis and treatment. So two things. One is that fully agree with Ferg. I, I think we'll have to be in the future a little bit uh, careful about pot smoking. A lot of people 
are now doing it. So it remains to be seen whether, you know, this is not eventually a risk factor to, to, be, to be monitored. I would err inside of caution. The, I'll, the final comment is that um, since now nine years that unfortunately your mom passed away, uh, we have seen the most incredible revolution that I would now never ever had dreamed when I started my career over th- three decades ago. And I think it's always not uh, fast enough, but there is such a flurry of new treatments to preserve the bladder. Even when the disease went outside, it doesn't respond to chemotherapy. There is such a, a breath and, and, and wealth of, of competence in our country that I am actually pretty optimistic that every year uh, when we get together, I'll be able mm-hmm. to come up with even more reassuring news for people with the disease. That is where we will leave it uh, for this Bladder Cancer Awareness Month. And for any information on support from Bladder Cancer Canada, go to bladdercancercanada.org. Ferg and Dr. Zlata, thank you both so much. Wishing you well, Jane. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Well, always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure. Thank you both. Stay safe. Ferg Devins, bladder cancer survivor and chair of Bladder Cancer Canada, and Dr. Alexander Zlata, director of uroncology at Mount Sinai, professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto, and member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. Jane, for Libby, she will be back tomorrow. Have a great day. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, fight back with Libby Snymer on Zuber Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is taking a long weekend. She will be back tomorrow. Joining us as they do every Monday, our Zoomer squad is here to talk about issues important to those who are 45 and older. Moses' definition of a Zoomer. You're also welcome to weigh in on our topics. The lines are open 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Our Zoomer squad is David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hello, squad. Hello, Jane. Hi, everyone. Well, let's talk about some good news first. A week ahead of schedule, the age of eligibility for COVID-19 vaccines drops to 18 across Ontario tomorrow. So, David, what was a slow start certainly has ramped up with a significant increase in vaccine doses. That's certainly true. And we have had some cautious optimism among the squad last week and the week before. We didn't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's clear now that the supply is coming in uh, as hoped for, maybe even slightly better than hoped for. And so as they open it up, um, we're going to see more of this, and I hope everybody uh, takes advantage of this uh, opportunity. Yes, and it's so nice for those of us Zoomer parents who have adult children that they've been able to get their vaccines just in the last week. Uh, my son yeah. Jacob, 26, my daughter Jamie, 24, they they got theirs this week. Stepsons have also gotten theirs. So it's it's a big relief, Bill, for those of us uh, with children who are grown and living in hotspots in Toronto. Well, it certainly is a relief, and not only are we now more comfortable about their health, but it means that uh, it looks like it's not going to be that long before we can start not only visiting them, but have them come and assist us the way they were able to before COVID hit. Right. Yes. Excellent point. Uh, Peter, what are your thoughts on uh, 18 plus a week ahead of schedule? Well, you you know, uh, that's great news, but I'm still waiting for my first vaccine. So, you are uh, not, are you? <laughs> I, I'm in a I'm in a zone. I, I'm in a uh, postal code which is in between all the hot zones. So I, um, you know, uh, 50 plus people are still had to go through the central registry, and uh, the earliest I could get was middle of June. Wow. So, yeah. So I, I've been trying with at the local clinics, but they're they're very they're dead set on following the uh, hot zone uh, postal codes. Yes, and um, so I'm waiting, but but it, it is good news, and and uh, I'm sure I won't have to wait as long for a second dose because of the uh, 
the uh, flux of uh, vaccines coming in. Well, it's interesting, Peter, you mentioned one of my colleagues who's working from home in Fergus, Ontario. She is 40, in her early 40s, and age eligibility for the vaccine went to 40 across the province last week. And when she goes and enters her postal code, it comes up as 60-plus eligibility. So they, I think there are still some kinks in the system there, as well. There are glitches, for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, the the advice I'd be given is if you can go to a clinic, go go to that first, and then uh, you know use the central registry as a fallback because there are glitches for sure. Let's talk about second doses now, especially for those of us who got the AstraZeneca vaccine first. We are waiting to hear what's to become of the fifty thousand AZ vaccines in Ontario, which are nearing their expiry dates, along with the six hundred fifty-five thousand doses that arrived in Canada last week but have not been distributed. Scientists agree there is a one in a million chance of having that severe blood clot after a second dose of AstraZeneca. So, David. Why not get these 50,000 doses into the arms of Ontario residents who already got the first shot? Well, I I think you have to have postdoctoral fellowships to figure this out (laughs) because not just, not just doctors, but a postdoctor, the communications around this, the science around this, the yes, it's safe. No, it's not abundance of caution, not an abundance of caution. Um, I have no clue what to make of it all, and I think that they have sowed so much confusion and uncertainty, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that there's other research that says most people that, you know, have their first dose are quite happy with it and they're ready for the second dose, but it's not because they've been given any clear guidance from the powers that be. Right. And you mentioned that people are happy having received it the first time. There was a brand new poll, Angus Reid poll out this morning, showing that almost all Canadians who received the AstraZeneca shot first have no regrets. And I heard a lot of those people on the air with Libby during Free For All Friday. Um, And if you didn't get through and you'd like to comment about the AstraZeneca situation and what's to be done with these 50,000 waiting doses in Ontario um, and any frustration you're feeling or are you just waiting on the Pfizer vaccine are you know you're just chilling out waiting to be told what to do uh, give us a call 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866-740-4740 uh, Bill there's no question about it the AstraZeneca vaccine has gotten a bad rap more so than it deserves well it certainly has gotten a bad rap and it depends on who you listen to uh, what's uh what's deserved but uh, uh, more for the communication than from the fact all the all the studies that uh, that we've seen show that the chance of having a bad reaction to it of any kind are phenomenally low lower than many of the other risks that we take in life what we're hearing though from our CARP members who have gotten it is uh, fine we have the first one we're all right now can we get the second one sooner because many of them are having to wait months away when they originally thought that they would be able to get their vaccines four or five weeks apart. So that's their concern now. They've had the first, they want their second, and they want to to be fully vaccinated. Bill, don't you think that um, at a certain point when we start getting these multiple millions of doses every week of Pfizer and Moderna, that that, that window of 16 will, weeks will be narrowed? Well, we're certainly hoping so, and that's what we're uh, pushing for. But there has been uh, no uh, no announcements, nothing definite, even not just here in Ontario, but right across uh, the country. So uh, with all the, the back and forth around communication and changing of the experts' minds, I don't think any of our current members are, are willing to count on a shorter duration until it's announced and they actually have it in their arm. Okay, here's an ethical issue for you. And I've got the Zoomer squad here, Jane for Libby on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugrich. The other issue is there is so much Pfizer and Moderna coming in in the coming weeks and months. We might not need the additional 17.5 million doses of AstraZeneca still on order for Canada. In fact, Peter, uh, the uh, procurement minister, Anita Anand, 
mused over the weekend that maybe these millions of vaccines will be sent to other countries which don't have vaccine, third world countries, effectively. Yeah, um, well, she can she can muse about that. But I I, I really think, uh, you know, you know, I don't want to be accused of being a vaccine nationalist, but uh, really, if we have the doses, we should we should inoculate our own people first, you know, and then and then uh, start distributing it elsewhere. Because it wasn't so long ago we were desperate for doses, right. and uh, and now we have a few million extra. Um, perhaps we should just get everyone vaccinated before we think of rolling it out. I, it sounds a bit heartless, I know, but. Um, but but I think in terms of our, our self interest, uh, certainly we should uh, we we should take care of our our own people first. David, and, what and, you, David, well, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and how dare they muse in the first place? I mean, th- this is part of the problem. There's such a glut of contradictory information. Uh, yes, we will. No, we won't. Remember the history of AstraZeneca. They they paused giving it. They didn't just say there's a one in a million chance. It's true that a study over yonder is a one in a million chance that you're going to get a cry. That's well within the acceptable risk. We're going to keep vaccinated. They paused it. So what am I to think if I received now they've stopped giving it? That's a lot more of a significant looking gesture than just pointing out some statistical thing that you're not worried about. Then they get it on again, on again, off again. And all through COVID, we have seen this happening much more extremely in the United States, but wear a mask, don't wear a mask. This is safe. This is dangerous. You have in the U.S., which is drowning in vaccines, a glut of vaccines, you have the phenomenon of people arguing about whether you still need to wear a mask after you've been vaccinated. And the CDC last week, it reversed itself in a 48-hour period from, no, you still got to be, you know, it's still... You've got to wear a mask after you've been vaccinated. And then they realize, well, I'm telling people to wear a mask after they've been vaccinated. Maybe we're telling them that the vaccine doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And then that contributes to the absurd thing. I, I, the way I have to mention, I'm sorry, it's just too delicious to, to <laughs> not mention where you have in the state of Ohio. Um, I don't know if you heard this. They actually have created that as an incentive for you to get a vaccine. If you still haven't had one in the state of Ohio, if you go and get your vaccine, you're automatically entered in a special lottery, state-run lottery with a grand prize of $1 million. Only in America, David. Mm-hmm. Only in America. But, but it's an example, though, of the yes, no, maybe one expert, another expert, the whole public health profession has to get a grip here and simplify and make the messaging more consistent because they're doing more harm than good with all the, and you know with all this speculative musing and maybe this maybe that it's terrible it's bill terrible. Uh, bill before we get to some callers here that want to discuss the vaccine situation what do, what do you think about that say we have so much well, Pfizer and Moderna we can give everybody both doses should we give away the AstraZenecas I think there there are two questions uh, that are raised in people's minds, and 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 I've been talking to CART members who have had the AstraZeneca, and they're saying, first of all, can you really mix vaccines? These are two very different uh, kinds of vaccines. We're told. So, do I want to get a second dose of something different from the AstraZeneca? And they don't know. They're not, as David said, they're not getting a clear message. And the second thing is, if we have all that. AstraZeneca, why not use it up now so that people can get their second dose more quickly? And then obviously we're going to have more left over after that. And then if there's some we can share with other countries, a fine. But uh, consider the people who are who have had the first dose of AstraZeneca and you're putting them in a really difficult spot in terms of wondering whether or not this will be the second dose will come in time or it'll be something different. And will that help or hurt them? Well, we appreciate your opinions for sure. Let's go to the phones now. 416-360-0740. Toll free. 1-866-744-740. Bob in Kitchener, welcome to Fight Back. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's, I've just been talking to my daughter uh, a month ago, and she was saying that she could not get the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine because she's allergic to 
latex and a few other things. And Yatravenica is the only one that she can take because of her allergies. So maybe this should come into a play, too. Well, right, because she wouldn't have any other options if they give away the AstraZeneca. That's right. Right. Okay, thank you for that information, Bob. Let's go to Lily in Pickering. Lily, what would you like to add? Hi, good afternoon, Libby. This is uh, my first time calling. Well, uh, let me ring the bell. It's Jane for Libby today. Here you go. Oh, oh, (laughs) hi, Jane. (laughs) So uh, what would you like to add to the conversation? Again, it's the AstraZeneca uh, vaccines are stored. Apparently there's... uh, some in reserve and due to expire at the end of the month. Why are they not rushing to get these these vaccines out as second doses? I know we've all, there are a lot of us here at the Zoomerplex, so 55 plus, who got our vaccines in the pharmacies. We got the AstraZeneca vaccines. Um, I was six weeks ago yesterday, I got my first shot and uh, people... Yeah, I will be two months two months. Right. So apparently the optimal time, uh, and this seems to be across the board, what scientists are saying is exactly 12 weeks after you get the first AZ is the optimal time to get the second AZ. So I know. So you've got, what, four more weeks? I've got six more weeks. Um, It would be nice to get some direction and some feedback as to what's going to happen. I agree. But isn't there a lot that are going to expire at the end of the month? Yes. 50,000 doses. So why are they not rushing to get those out to to the second, you know, as the second doses to people who've already had their first? Why are they not, they're not doing anything about this? David, this is more of this mixed messaging that we're talking about. Well, well, exactly. Um, the question is absolutely on point. Why aren't they? What is their reason? And there can't be a good reason unless they think that there's some safety issue, in which case, why are they being vague about it and saying, well, maybe we'll give these potentially unsafe vaccines? I don't, by the way, believe that for a minute. But um, what what would be the reason for the hesitancy, the pause on again, off again? And there must be somebody in this in the leadership that understands or that that can grasp the uh, horrible effects of this kind of mixed messaging, unclear messaging, uh, and, and constant change of direction. They have to get a grip here. I'm sure you could find 50,000 Ontario residents who got their AstraZeneca vaccine a couple of months ago who would love to get that second shot uh, rather Absolutely. than it would be a shame to let and those Jane, expire. Uh, Jane, uh, presumably if they had their first shot and they didn't have an adverse reaction, um, wouldn't that make them more of a candidate to get their second shot? Oh, absolutely. You know? yeah. It's it's one in a million. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. It, and it becomes even less so if you've had your first shot, right? Well, so, it is um, what, it's I, one I, in a million if you've had the first shot and no reaction right. for the second shot. Yeah. So um, I, I know that there there's a study ongoing at Oxford University right now um, that's testing the efficacy of mixing and matching uh, AstraZeneca. And and they released early data on it. Yes. But it was only about um, people who received um, Pfizer as their second dose and had received AstraZeneca as their first dose. They they had um, sort of minor flu-like symptoms. Right. A a lot of people had flu-like symptoms when they received their second dose. But they're still waiting to see... um, how it affects um, the body's uh, ability to fight the disease. And, exactly. and I assume the pause will go on until we get those results. I think you're right. I think they, they want more world data, the right. National Advisory Committee on Immunization here in Canada, before they make a final decision. Yeah. Okay, we need to switch topics. Uh, let's talk about Danny Fortin. The major major general is no longer heading up Canada's COVID vaccine rollout while an investigation is conducted. Uh, this morning, we reported here on Zoomer Radio News uh, from CTV News uh, that says a report from them says he's accused of sexual misconduct from his days as a student at the Royal Military College in Quebec an allegation that dates back some 32 years. Uh, Bill, your thoughts on all of this? Well, it's really, uh, really disquieting. And uh, to think that uh, something like this uh, could could happen and only comes out uh, now really, uh, you know, uh, older Canadians have great respect for their uh, uh, military. And I know this kind of report, uh, no matter what the final outcome, makes them uh, very sad and, 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 very, and very concerned. 
David, what do you think about this in terms of the timeline of how long an investigation would take and whether somebody should take over this position either temporarily or permanently while the, if, while the probe is conducted? What are your thoughts? Well, I think, I, first of all, there's a, there's a big fog over the whole topic because we don't really know mm-hmm. what the accusation was. Um, and the spectrum of what it could have been, uh, is, you know, very large, you know, ranging from, uh, misdemeanors to harassment to criminal conduct. So we don't know what that is. Um, but it's yet one more, uh, example, uh, of how the military, the whole situation in the military has not really been handled, uh, very transparently, to put it mildly. And then second of all, um, we don't have any details about the allegation. When would they have been told? I don't believe they've been investigating him solidly for 30 years, only to finally decide that he's got to go. I think this is something relatively recent. Right. But but again, it just speaks to the fact if you're going to keep everything, you know, under wraps, then you encourage this kind of speculation. Really, we'd have nothing to to you know, to go by it. But clearly, they must think it's serious enough that he can't uh, hold the position he holds. And I think we have to take that as read. Peter, is this symptomatic, this accusation against Danny Fortin of a wider problem in the military, or we just let the investigation run its course? Well, you know, they're they're having their their issues in the military. Uh, They've had, um, I, I think... They have two other generals who are being, uh, yes. General Va- uh, Jonathan Vance and um, Art McDonald are, are um, being investigated uh, by military police for, for sexual misconduct allegations. So I think the, the whole military is, uh, you know, taking a deep breath to see how these results turned out. And, um, you know, there's, there's going to have to be a massive culture change within the military like we saw in the RCMP. A final topic for today is uh, the fact uh, revealed the other day by the embattled long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, that inspectors have been sent in by the province to two long-term care homes flagged by the military as having deaths caused by neglect, not COVID-19. I know you all talked with Libby about this last week. What uh, what do you make of this in terms of um, the investigations that are being conducted by these inspectors, what they will net, how it will affect the future of long-term care? I'll go around the table. Bill, I'll start with you. Well, for, first of all, this, of course, is not new news to, to us. Uh, David has been pointing this out in his uh, program for uh, months now that, that this kind of thing has happened. So it's in, in no way a surprise. What is concerning is that uh, what these reports keep coming out about what has happened, but uh, nothing was done about it then and, and nothing is being done about it, done, done about it now. No action seems to be uh, taken. And will this eventually uh, be, be forgotten? Is, is with no, is the government waiting? Uh, until people are are tired of hearing of the same uh, incidences over and and over, uh, and uh, what we're determined to do is make sure that we we don't forget that they are acted on. If the if these uh, reports uh, were true, and there's no reason to think that they were not, then they've got to be acted on beyond just the COVID uh, concern, because this is a total. Uh, uh, lack of respect and disregard for our most vulnerable seniors. David, you often will have the inside track on what's going on behind the scene. What does this mean uh, when Marilee Fullerton says the province has sent inspectors inside two long-term care homes? It means that she's being forced to do something because of the Auditor General's report and the Morocco Commission report. So it's optics, number one. Uh, I can't sit back and do nothing. Uh, but number two, to be fair, let's see uh, what happens. One of the criticisms Morocco had of the past regime was that even when an inspector went in, there was very little that they could do. They would file a report. No fines were ever assessed. 
uh, corrective action uh, wasn't taken. Uh, you, they do make the reports public. So, all right, uh, let's see what they, let's see what the inspectors come back with and let's see what action you take. Mm-hmm. The act of sending them in is 100 uh, percent political theater. Uh, if they fix it, then that now we can talk. But right now they're just uh, they're just trying to create some optics to deflect the scathing to reports that they've had to deal with. Interesting, Peter. What about you? Well, I, I think management under uh, Downsview and Hawthorne are, are they're they're in uh, big trouble because um, the report actually mentions um, you know management should be charged and. Uh, so that's um, that's a that's a uh, allegation you can't sort of overlook because they're saying patients died from uh, neglect rather than died from COVID. So um, these these are very serious charges, and um, Fullerton has to look into them and and find out why um, these two particular homes became such death traps and whether it was management's fault. And and I think there are going to be um, there are going to be charges coming out of this. I hope so. Well, yes, I hope so too, because it's just it's it's beyond inhumane to yeah. to think that that would be happening here yeah. in the city of Toronto and the country of Canada. Um, before I let you all go for another week, um, Bill, David, there's a big event happening on Wednesday. Carp and the Zoomer are presenting our Living at Home, Aging at Home webinar. Um, what what can you tell us about this, Bill? How can we get involved? Because a lot of people, especially when we hear these stories about long term care, want to age at home? Well, we know that even before COVID, 90% of the uh, older Canadians wanted to stay in their own homes, didn't want to be in long-term care. We know it's going to be even higher than that when we survey people again after uh, COVID. So this raises all kinds of questions. How do I stay in my own home or my own community? And that's why uh, the Zoomer and CARP are presenting this webinar on Wednesday at uh, 11 o'clock, and it's going to talk about uh, our role and our partner's role in helping people learn more about how they can resource their own retirement in their in their own home. And David may want to add a little bit of detail. Yeah, um, I think the good news is that, uh, and the reason the webinar is so important, and it's free, and you can sign up at carp.ca, but the reason it's so important is that this is a topic that's really getting much more exciting. There's way more services than you realize that can help you. There's way more new technology that can help you. There's new ways to figure out the best way to renovate or remodel your home. There's additional financial resources you may not know about. So we thought it was a good time to update everybody so it doesn't just sit as this kind of desirable, you know, I'd like to age at home. Fine, who doesn't? But there's actually a lot that's happening that's new that you may not be aware of that you'll be able to learn about during this event. So I, I would encourage all the listeners to uh, go to carp.ca, find out that there's a detailed schedule, find out more about it and, and attend and participate. Great idea. All right. Thank you all, Zoomer Squad. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Jane for Libby. And if you or a loved one is living with bladder cancer, this next segment is for you. It's Bladder Cancer Awareness Month and an extra challenging time for bladder cancer patients during the COVID pandemic. If you'd like to reserve a line, my friends from Bladder Cancer Canada will be joining us next. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.